there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. By the way, K-Cups come in three sizes, single, double, and triple shots, or roughly one minute, five minutes, or 10 minutes in length. So if you don't have time to throw back an entire caffeinated career conversation, these K-Cup mini-episodes of T4C can give you a quick caffeinated fix, whether you're on the go or you only have a few minutes to binge. So grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for a caffeinated career triple-shot K-Cup with my guest, Chris Schroeder. So you've been in the startup ecosystem for a couple of decades, may even be a little longer than that. And I'm going to want to talk with you about some of your earlier ventures in a little bit. But why don't we kick things off by learning a bit more about another billion, the next billion ventures that you co-founded. What's your mission? And could you help our listeners understand what it takes to get a venture fund off the ground? So next billion is the name. I mean, you know, a lot of people hope that it will be about money, which would be great because I do this in part to be very remunerative or successful for the people who invest in us. And I hope to do well for my family and that kind of stuff. But the next billion that we're referring to actually is not money per se. It's the next billion human beings around the world who for the first time have access to technology. They have access to all the same video and social media that everybody has and has access to the best professionalism and programming skills and so on who are unleashing themselves in ventures that they're building overall to have very, very large ramifications in their backyards or in their regions or in other parts of the world that very often Americans don't spend a lot of time with. And like any typical venture capital fund, our job is to raise money and deploy that money in the best women and men that we see in the markets that we care about. Our focus is very much in emerging markets. The West, I think, has a lot of competition with some very good investors. China has magnificent investors in doing important things. But we look at three city hubs around the world, Singapore for Southeast Asia, Dubai for the Middle East, a little bit of Saudi Arabia, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, and some other places for Latin America. And we look for the best women and men on the ground who are trying to solve problems for the first time in those markets that could get very large. And because we cover a lot of ground, we partner with local people who have been very successful and have very high integrity. And we hope we bring a lot in our relationships with American companies of success but also with these other companies around the world to be very helpful. The essence of the fund is like any company that you build is you have great talent. And I have wonderful partners who have co-founded this with me, who have spent the last decade or more investing in rising markets with great global incense. We have people on the ground who help keep us honest about what the trends are happening in the ground. But our first job is to raise money because if we don't raise the money in our fund, we'll deploy some of our own personal money, but we want much more than that to deploy. So I, we spend years, and every venture capital fund will spend years convincing very wealthy individuals, universities, uh, other investment groups who are looking where they can deploy money with someone they can trust. And we've been able to convince some wonderful investors that Next Billion is an interesting thesis with people of character and integrity who can help these entrepreneurs succeed in many corners of the world. I read an article that you posted on LinkedIn in early February. And it was just before the coronavirus took over the world. And ironically, you had just returned from three weeks in ground zero in China. 
and you would travel to Beijing, to Hangzhou, and to Shanghai. And you met with over 70 executives, investors, and academics to try to better understand the rise in technology and innovation in China. And what was super surprising to you that you wrote about in this article, and honestly, Chris, it was super surprising to me too, as somebody who studied Chinese in school, who lived in China twice, that over the course of those three weeks and all of the meetings that you had, the United States did not come up even once. Yes, that's true. This is a, a very interesting period that we're in right now, and it's uh, not just true of China, but it's true elsewhere. With this dispersal of technology, with now 70, 80% of humanity with a smart device, with this talent being unleashed in so many parts of the world overall, the real opportunities for so many people are here. If you and I had this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Almost any company that wanted to be global, almost any company that wanted to have impact somewhere, really was aiming to get into the American market or maybe the Western markets overall. And Americans, if they wanted to go abroad, they would go abroad if a market was big enough or if they could have someone build things for them cheap enough. And that was a playbook, in a way, of the technology world for decades. Well, all of a sudden, people have access to technology, talent is unleashed everywhere, these markets are very large. For the first time, people are having the ability to buy and sell things and bank with technology and overall, and people are building incredibly interesting, successful things on their terms. They're not just merely mimicking what has been built in the West. They're not waiting for the West to arrive for those devices. They're saying, my backyard has very specific needs. It could be cultural or user or visual, and we're going to build just for that. And those companies started getting very big. And China has gotten enormous in this way. And putting aside you know, an important discussion about politics and the trade war, putting that all aside, the fact is massive tech companies with absolutely toe-to-toe talent from what we have in the West, with a market that in and of itself is a billion point three, with surrounded by markets around the world that are another new billions, you know, they have to get up and work in that competitive environment. And quite frankly, whatever is going on in America, they're aware of and they're interested by, and sometimes there are opportunities to engage, but it's not the top three priorities in the day-to-day existence. So what message is in that for our young viewers and our young listeners who may want to get into the tech space when they graduate, whether it's fintech or prop tech, cloud computing, AI, those that think that Silicon Valley is the be all end all? Where do you think the post-COVID future lies in tech and innovation? I think, first of all, there's just tremendous talent and capability and experience in America, which is very well leveraged. COVID has opened up something unbelievably profound that we're only in the early days of figuring out what it means. Because in the old days, one of the things that made Silicon Valley great was what we call the network effect of talent, meaning the more really talented people are there, the more talented people want to be there, the more talented people want to be there. And it has been and is an extraordinary thing. The way There's a reason why so many movies are made in Hollywood or you could pick other geographic locations that tend to build the idea of the best in the field want to be there. Well, COVID has accelerated something that has been happening already, which is talent is everywhere. And people want to live in different places. They don't want to move necessarily to one geographic location. You can replicate great talent engaging with each other in the very way you and I are doing it right now with digital devices. And that means across America, let alone across the world, There is now all sorts of different opportunities that don't aggregate necessarily around one geographic hub. And what I would tell young people today is there's plenty of work to be done here and plenty of amazing problems to be solved here. But 
you want to start thinking global day one. In the old days, you thought global at some point. If your company got big enough and you expanded within a domestic market, you might think there are other markets you could test into that are either geographically proximate or you just think they're big market opportunities. You can start thinking global day one. Global new customers, new ways of insight are one click away. Talent is one click away. And you can reach this and engage with this in a way that was simply almost technologically, infrastructurally impossible only a few years ago. And I think, frankly, the young generation is knowing as they come into this, yes, they can build skills. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in big cities in America, in Boulder, Colorado, to New York, to Silicon Valley, and to Austin, Texas, or whatever. But man, there's amazing stuff happening in Beijing, and Jakarta, and Cairo, and London, and Sao Paulo, and Mexico City. And these are, there's a new way to open yourself to be available to that. And when we're allowed to, I could not encourage people enough to actually go physically and begin to learn it by touching it and feeling it and seeing it directly. And what about learning the languages before they leave school? So this is a really unbelievably powerful question because I'm not great with languages overall. I've got little pieces of things, but now the strength and diversity of my travel means by definition, I will not master uh, multiple languages. And I think it's embarrassed me at one level because I think there's nothing more respectful than when you are in someone else's house to show that you care enough to learn a little bit of their language or speak their language clearly. And certainly for people who want to commit to a region, I think it's very important. The reality is now between technology and the fact that particularly in my world of startups and technology, English is a lingua franca across it, that there's still unbelievable opportunity to complement things. So for example, when I was in China, I relied on WeChat, which is the conversational and paid capability, of course, one of the two major ones in China. But I actually used it as a direct communication device everywhere that I went. So I never got lost. I never had trouble communicating with everyone because there's perfect. I don't speak a word of Chinese and I certainly don't read the language. And it was not perfect. It was not the same like you and I are having a conversation now, but it was unbelievably effective. People respected my attempts to kind of speak to them on, that, on their terms, not to expect them. They have to figure out what I'm navigating in English. And so the answer to your question is, I think it's still important. But it's going to be important in different ways. And there are other ways to shore it up. And with companies and technology like Duolingo, and I've been pitched a bunch of really amazing AI language things that are coming our way, the ability to really get on top of a language has become better and easier and faster than ever before. It'll be some combination of, I think, all these things. But what it really falls under the ages is, are you being respectful of the place in whose you are their guest? And I think that's the way to probably start with it. And there'll be many different components of which language is one. Okay, fair enough. Well, I actually use Duolingo and I've been getting hanged by it all day today because I have not done my Chinese lesson yet today. (laughs) Good for you. That's awesome. Do you like it? I do. I do. It's actually a little too easy for me and I'm not able to leapfrog to a more challenging level. So you have to kind of work through it linearly. And fortunately, my Chinese is not beginner. But I have to, I'm still working my way through a lot of the basic lessons right now. So that's interesting. Awesome. So, what kind of a venture could you give us a a window into, Chris, in terms of an investment that Next Billion has made? I know you've made them in the Philippines, in Mexico, in many countries around the world to give us a window into the type of startup that you're looking to put your money behind? At one level, and this has sort of historically been the way that a lot of investors coming into these new markets have thought of the world, 
is here you have these places which have only recently become relatively digitally engaged, and they don't have a lot of the basic services that we take for granted. And so there was a term that was always a little bit pejorative or insulting in a way, but a little bit descriptive, which is there's a whole bucket of companies they call copycats, which means that if you you built an e-commerce company successful in America, well, you could replicate that in Latin America. Or if you have ride sharing in America, you could replicate that in another market. The reason why I think it's an unfortunate term is in reality, these entrepreneurs who have built what you might want to call the Uber of whatever, they're not just Ubers of whatever. They're incredibly sensitive to the local market. They have all sorts of innovation and user experiences, which are unique there. It's not merely that they're in local language. They actually completely understand local context. And these companies are becoming enormous. So for example, the largest ride-sharing company in the Middle East is a company called Kareem that went absolutely toe-to-toe with Uber. Uber could not beat it. And in fact, Uber decided to buy it for $3.2 billion because they knew they understood something on the ground that they could not do on their own. In the Southeast Asia, there are in fact two ride-sharing companies called Grab and Gojek, uh, which I you know, know very, very well. But they're not just ride-sharing companies. They're actually what they call now super apps, which means they have all other kinds of services like mobile payments and booking tickets to theater events and other things, all in an experience. And by the way, Uber ended up leaving Southeast Asia. They ended up buying a little stake in Grab, but they couldn't actually just sort of run off with it because this understanding of local nuance and how to navigate it is such a powerful thing. The second bucket is that many of these different parts of the world have very unique needs that folks in America are not thinking about. So for example, I'm an investor in a company called Twiga in Kenya. In Kenya right now, anyone who's ever been there knows that there are something like 150,000 fruit and vegetable stands all across Nairobi alone, the capital of the country. Every morning, the shop owners get up at four o'clock in the morning. They walk two hours to one wholesale market to get some fruits and vegetables. They walk it back. They sell their inventory one time, and that's all they can do. Twiga came in with some data science and technology and said, we could actually arrange this in such a way that food could be delivered right to your store. In fact, with the data that we have, we could know when you stock out and get you more food to sell more so your business can grow. With the data that we create, we can figure out ways to lend you produce or other things so that you can grow your business. And it's just an incredible model that will, I think, span throughout not only Kenya and Africa, but other rising markets. And in fact, many rising markets have versions of it that have pitched me of late. And the fact is, there isn't anybody I know in America thinking about solving that problem. So these are unique problems and unique opportunities in these markets that excite me no end, because effectively they're saying, let me find a problem that's really messy to solve. And once I can figure out the messiness of it, I can layer the fact that everyone has access to technology. I can use technology to scale it quickly. And you build something that's actually never been there before. And now we're even talking about new kinds of technologies like machine learning and AI, which are unleashing a whole new generation of either efficiencies for these kinds of companies I've described, or brand new companies and things like telemedicine and online education, literally everywhere in the world. So these are the kinds of things that I think about and see every day. Well, as I said in the introduction, the introduction that you didn't hear because it's (laughs) pre-recorded, until I was preparing to do this interview, Chris, I had never heard of PropTech, which is shorthand for property-related technology. And one of the PropTech startups that Next Billion Ventures has invested in is Propsy, a Vietnamese-based startup that guides consumers in sort of a soup to nuts way through a real estate transaction. What was it about Propsy 
that made you and your colleagues say, yeah, this is where we want to put our money? Every entrepreneurial venture begins with one foundational question, which is, is a woman or man running that the person you want to back? It really starts there. In the case of Propsy and other companies that we've looked at, we thought this was a very interesting entrepreneur who's very tenacious and cannot be slowed down. And, you know, there's just a lot of really exciting things about some of the traction that he built and what was going on there. But in another way, Propsy is a perfect example of the kind of three continuum that I described before, because the fact is, you know, a lot of people know the company Zillow in the United States, and there are a lot of Compass. There are a lot of these prop tech companies in the United States that have been very successful and very large. So there's no reason why the ability to buy and sell more efficiently and more cost effectively should not happen everywhere in the world. So that's one kind of broad behavior. But secondly, in Vietnam, the dynamics are very different. There's a lot of access to data that simply doesn't exist the way it does in America. Access to technology is different. People actually like a human touch. And so the Propsy CEO realized, and he actually has a lot of employees who literally are meeting physically with people on a regular basis to get them comfortable with a transaction that they then can take digitally in ways that are very unique and sensitive to the culture, not only of Vietnam, but other parts of Southeast Asia and emerging markets. And thirdly, he's building all these unbelievable data sets of people buying and selling properties and can lay on really interesting aspects of machine learning that's going to allow him to make the transaction more relevant and more efficient going forward. And when you can find that, Troika, there's no guarantee you're going to succeed because at the end of the day, what you really are hoping is that woman or man will break out. And there are other prop tech companies in Vietnam, and there are plenty of others in Southeast Asia. It's possible a Chinese prop tech company might come there. American prop tech companies are looking at all the markets we're in. Competition is there. But if you have a shot to go behind that woman or man that could be that number one or number two player in a market, well, you're going to make tremendous amount of impact and be very successful. And these are the kinds of things that you really think about in order to make that decision to actually put money and time, mentorship and support to any woman or man who's trying to build something that was not there before. Thanks for tuning in to this K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.